Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio. I recognized Kevin as a soul I had always known. I had always known him. He literally took my breath away. He was an amazing, amazing soul. He was born with his eyes wide open. I swear when I met him, I was like, oh my God, it's like an alien in a a good way. He brought me such joy that I remember it brought me a fear too because I always had this feeling that life doesn't work out for me, that things get taken from me. And and there was a fear to love somebody like I love Kevin. But, you know, I'm going to love you anyway, buddy, because I'm not even going to be afraid. Right. I'm just going to love you so deep. That's Buffy and Pat McGuire talking about the birth of their son, Kevin. Eight years later, on May 12th, 2012, Kevin collapsed right before a soccer game. He was rushed to the hospital where they found a cancerous brain tumor. That That's how quick life changed. And we've been kind of living in a, as far as I'm concerned, in a different realm ever since that moment. You kept thinking you like hit a bottom of like a really bad nightmare and it just kept getting worse. As far as like me and Buffy, you know, leaning on each other, whatever, actually it's more like, I always looked at us like two people on a mountaintop with broken legs, kind of just looking at each other like, ah, I can't, I can't help you. You can't help me. We pretty much lived in the children's hospitals for 14 months. Buffy actually did live in the hospital. She never came home. And we knew the inevitable and we took him home. And, you know, the day he died, that day happened to be a beautiful day, too. I didn't have an idea how I was going to be strong. I didn't even have an intention to be strong, to be really honest. I just really just didn't know what to do.
after a death like that, it is just a big process of figuring out how to live after that and figuring out how to raise kids after that and figuring out how to, I don't know, function to get up and make breakfast and lunch and grocery shop. And it's a big deal. It's a big, big transition. Imagine a house burning down and it's just burnt down to ashes. That's what I see when I look into like our life. I just see a life just burnt down to ashes and everything included how to, you know, be a husband, how to be a father. Getting through it means it's done and, you know, the loss of Kevin is not, it's not done. I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. Buffy and Pat's son, Kevin, passed away from a brain tumor when he was just nine years old. That was six years ago. Like Buffy said in the intro, the death of a child isn't something you get through. It isn't something that ever goes away. It's something you live and grow with every single day for the rest of your life. And that's what Buffy and Pat are doing. Buffy and Pat have this sweeping epic of a love story. One filled with twists and turns. There's no conventional narrative here. They're just two people who fell into a friendship and then into love. All while trying to figure out how to navigate the world on their own. They've been together for 25 years now. And in that time, it feels like they've lived multiple lifetimes. Been dozens of different people. The two of them met on the corner of the Great Highway in Judah Street in San Francisco, right in front of Ocean Beach. Buffy was 20, Pat was 26. We kind of had an instant, there was an instant recognition. I don't know, there was just something that I, I knew Buffy. It's like I knew her from the second I saw her. That part of San Francisco the Outer Sunset neighborhood back in the mid-90s. It was still a bohemian dream of old hippies and surfers. Pat owned a cafe out there called Java Beach. Buffy, home from college, wanted a job. So they first saw each other at the intersection outside Pat's cafe. Buffy had no idea that he was the one who had to hire her to work at Java Beach. But he was. I didn't even realize he was my boss for like eight weeks. He was a kid, you know, (laughs) he wore Converse tennis shoes and he was funny and cute and he was not, I didn't realize he was part owner of Usually we'd launch into something here like he asked her out, then they went on a bunch of dates. But like I said, there's no conventional dating narrative in this story. Maybe I don't know what dating really is. But I imagine dating to be this thing out of like a John Hughes movie where like someone comes with 
rings the doorbell and like opens doors and everything. And it's not that Pat's not capable of that, but it was just never so formal. We just started hanging out. They had every reason to keep it casual. Buffy was eventually going back to college and Pat was running a business and dealing with his own issues. It wasn't going to last, right? We met at this, this intersection of time, this strange vortex of a moment where I wasn't really supposed to be there and he was barely there. Pat had struggled with drug and alcohol addiction for most of his adult life. He just started a 12-step program and there are rules when you're in a 12-step program. You're not supposed to date for the first year. You're supposed to focus and work on yourself. I was a very troubled soul, to be quite honest. I was a guy who, uh, you know, had a lot of trouble and difficulty in my life with a lot of things, a lot of people. I actually felt bad, like, you know, hey, you don't want to hang around me because I'm trouble. I'm going to be in trouble. I can't ever seem to get myself out of trouble. I don't want you sinking on this ship with me. So, you know, I said, you got to, you know, live your own life. You know, go to college, go where you're going to go. But, you know, just know that I love you and that that my love for you is real. I wish I was more of like a normal guy that could have offered, you know, something to her. His struggles, they worried me. They saddened me for him and for just for loving him. But it wasn't like my life was attached to that. And then my life was on this roller coaster. We were both sort of independent in our own way. We were passing ships that just happened to be in the same place at the same time, but we both knew we were going other places. We didn't even think it was quite feasible for us to be together. So Buffy went back to college on the East Coast, and Pat ended up going to another rehab facility. He'd found a pamphlet for a place in Florida, a farm for drug addicts and alcoholics being run by a nun from Italy. And when I went there, they said... I was there for two months and I decided I'm, you know, I'm really going to embrace this and and change my life. And the nun asked me if I wanted to be one of the first Americans from this program that they send to Bosnia. And I said, Bosnia, where's Bosnia? And she's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, the former Yugoslavia. And I go, oh, I wait, isn't there a war there? There was a war there, but it had just ended and this nun was doing missionary work. She thought Pat might want to be a volunteer. Maybe she could see that he needed a purpose, that he was looking for some kind of meaning greater than himself. So when he went to Bosnia, he asked me to wait for him. And I said no. And I said he had to go do his own thing. And then if it was meant to be, it would be. And if it wasn't meant to be, it wouldn't be. Pat was in Bosnia for 14 months mostly doing work with war orphans. They wouldn't let me write letters or talk to anybody on the phone, so I didn't know where Buffy was. I didn't know if she got married. I, you know, I would imagine in her I go, you know, she probably married some senator or something, you know, like a Smith girl would. Probably happy to get rid of a, a, a thug like me, you know? And I don't know, I just... When I was there, I would, like, pray for her every night and hope the best for her wherever she was. I went into the chapel one night after 14 months 
of not talking to anybody in San Francisco or the Buff. I didn't even know where Buffy was. And I said, hey God, I want to mention one thing. And I had a little picture of Buffy and I go, see this girl right here? I go, I love her. And if I ever get a chance, if there's any possibility, I would love to marry her and have kids with her and have like a normal life, you know, do stuff like, you know, eat hamburgers and eat ice cream, you know, normal stuff, right? That I never ever did. And I said, but whatever you want, God, whatever you want from me is fine. The very next day, after 14 months, they said, Pat, you have a visitor. And I go, really, I have a visitor? And they go, yeah, and I just calm down, wait, you know. And I couldn't believe it when they opened the door and it was Buffy. I just couldn't believe it, oh my God. You know, I sat with her and I, you know, I just told her I love her. And, and then I kind of, you know, I dropped something on her. I said, hey, you know, I know this is gonna sound weird, but the only way I'm coming home to America is if you marry me. And I go, if you say yes, I'll come home. I go, if you say no, I'm gonna go be a priest or something. She was like, yeah, I'll marry you. And I go, really? All right. And so that's really where the proposal happened in, in Bosnia. I remember it a little differently, but I guess that's the yeah. nature of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't remember know there being an ultimatum. I don't remember you saying that like that. Yeah. I think that was an internal dialogue. It might have been an I internal remember dialogue. the line. It could have been. It could have been. I remember. Well, first of all, I, he, he did kind of propose from practically before you kissed me, you practically proposed to me. You're, it was not, it, it was a romantic setting, but he was like, you didn't come all this way to just like, tell me you're not gonna marry me, did you? It was quite a reunion. Yeah, to me it was a miracle. And to me it was, I don't know, I just, I just felt, you know, my direction was being spoken to loud and clear. They had this really wonderful next year of just being engaged. Everyone's like, you're engaged. When are you getting married? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I mean, isn't it pretty big that we're engaged? And then I was going to graduate school in uh, Northern Ireland to study the first year of the peace process there. And it was just the right time to get married. Well, I thought we would just elope. I thought we would just sort of quietly elope. And 450 people later. Between Buffy's father and Pat's mother, and maybe even a little bit of Pat, all of a sudden, they had this enormous guest list and a really big wedding. The wedding reception was at the South End Rowing Club, where my mom's a bay swimmer. And it's really rustic. I mean, there were, like, people walking around in bathing suits. But it's, it's on the water. It's at Ghirardelli Square Aquatic Park. And it was September 5th, 1998. Next week is 21 years. for a quick break. When we get back, Buffy and Pat head to Northern Ireland. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. 
It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. When Pat was in Bosnia, he asked God for one thing. He wanted the chance to prove himself to Buffy. And he got that chance. They got married, and they were about to start a whole new life together in Northern Ireland, where Buffy was going to grad school. But Pat was still struggling with his sobriety. I didn't want to be the recovered drug addict, alcoholic. And so I just had this idea of what normal was. And since I never was normal all my life, I wanted to be it. But then I got uh, drunk for the final time on May 7th, 1999. And I have not touched any alcohol or drugs since May 7th, 1999, which is over tw- you know 20 years now. I got drunk and Buffy came home and she couldn't believe it that I was drunk and I was with my little uh, Belfast buddy who was a hoodlum in his own right, uh, you could, who you could write a book about. And I was with him and we were drunk and Buffy was furious. And she slammed the door. Buffy spent the next night figuring out what to say to Pat. When she finally talked to him the next day, she was brutally honest. She told him this wasn't what she signed up for. She told him she thought the days of him getting drunk were over. And this wasn't a road she wanted to go down with him. She told him she thought he was a coward. And she goes, well, because... What makes you a coward is you're not, you're not willing to fight for your own life. And she goes, and you're not willing to, you know, fight for me and for your family and what we want for you. And she goes, because I would be a brave man to me. She goes, but a guy who, like, just thinks of going around, you know, drinking, doing drugs, fighting people, being in college, if you think that's a tough guy, it's no tough guy to me. As far as that goes, there has been no struggle for 20 years at all. So I haven't even thought of drinking or doing drugs. Really, what formed from there was that we were really each other's family. Obviously, you know, our, we're partners, friends, partners, you know, husband, wife, but really like each other's family and part of just establishing our own cycles and, and our own patterns and, and being young enough to really be able to just say, okay, well, I, I don't like this, I want to do it this way, or I want to do it that way, and, and just really get to do it, because no one was telling us we couldn't. I think that was the establishment of being friends from a young age, and just always having our own paths, is that we were our own people doing what we, we wanted to do, and we weren't standing over the other one telling them what to do. I really love this part of their story. They gave each other enough space to grow and become humans in their own right. 
At that point, the two of them had sucked the marrow out of life. They didn't pass up a single opportunity or adventure. They'd traveled, they'd studied, they'd been broken and fixed and broken again. They really invested that time together before they started talking about growing their family. Actually, Kevin was brought home on the 10-year anniversary of us actually meeting each other. So we knew each other for 10 years, and we're talking about some 10 like pretty epic years. We had settled in to our skin or whatever the expression is. We we really we knew each other. We knew ourselves. Having Kevin was like we were ready. We were totally ready. Settling into life with Kevin at 30 felt totally normal and ready and and he was an amazing amazing soul. He was born with his eyes wide open. I swear when I met him I was like, "Oh my god, it's like an alien in a in a good way." He literally took my breath away. He was someone I had always known. Kevin was, in the way that I recognized Pat on the corner of Judah and the Great Highway, I recognized Kevin as a soul I had always known. I had always known him. Kevin, he was such a blessing to me, you know, because like my own personal struggles in life and like me always trying to find out like where I fit into this world. And like I told you, looking at the normal people, how can I be a normal person? What Kevin did to me was he burned all that away. I didn't care about the rest of the world anymore and how I looked to the rest of the world. I zeroed in on him and it was like, this is all I care about. And I'm going to be the best dad to this little guy that I can be. He brought me such joy that I remember it, it brought me a fear too, because I always had this feeling that life doesn't work out for me, that things get taken from me. And, and it, there was a fear to love somebody like I love Kevin. But, you know, I'm going to love you anyway, buddy, because I'm not even going to be afraid, right? I'm just going to love you so deep. Their next son, Connor, came almost three years later. And then Dylan came along a couple years after that. Basically, I had a five-and-a-half-year-old, a, a two year and 10 month old and a, and a newborn. And at that point we had three businesses. No, two business, two businesses. Two, yeah, two. Life was really busy. And really busy is always a good time for a break. Be right back. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. 
the way I see it is, you know, taking our whole story and our whole life together is to kind of take us to the day of May 12th, 2012, to kind of paint a picture of how beautiful really our, our life had become. You know, we had, you know, me clean and sober, us married. We had started to put our business and really succeed in business and buy property and have a home to live in. Three amazing, beautiful boys, great little athletes. And May 12th, 2012 was actually, it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful May day. And it was kind of like the perfect thing. We had a, a birthday party to go to. The day before Mother's Day. My sobriety birthday is May 7th. So I had just turned another year sober. Kind of a perfect San Francisco day but with no fog, right? And it was one of those days where the butterflies were out. And it was just beautiful. And Kevin had a championship soccer game in uh, Palo Alto. Kevin, you know, obviously he turned into this phenomenal little soccer player and athlete. And he was playing in the travel league at nine years old. How old? Eight years old. We were driving down Sunset Boulevard and Kevin said, guys, I, I don't feel well. I feel sick. And we were like, what's wrong, Kevin? And he goes, I don't know. I just feel sick. And so we pulled over on Sunset Boulevard. And I said, Kevin, just step out and try to get some fresh air or something. And he took about three steps out the door and he collapsed. And I ran over and I picked him up and I looked at him and I said to Buffy, I go, Buffy, something really is bad, wrong. Something's horrible. I think he's dying. And Buffy goes, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I go, just go to the hospital now. I think he's dying. She goes, stop that. What are you talking about? I go, 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 go. So we drove to the hospital and we went busting in through the doors with, with Kevin in my arms and I just carrying him. And I ran in, they grabbed him from me and they put him on a gurney. And we couldn't figure out what was happening. They rushed him in and they saved his life at that moment. And then they came out with this news that they found a, a mass on his brain. And they need us to bring us to Stanford immediately. From that moment, when they said those words, I really believe we just walked into a different world. That that's how you know quick life changed. And we've been kind of living in a as far as I'm concerned, in a different realm ever since that moment. You kept thinking you like hit a bottom of like a really bad nightmare and it just kept getting worse. The next thing they know, they're in an ambulance to Stanford where Kevin was rushed into an eight-hour brain surgery. From then on, being as present as possible helped sustain Buffy. We pretty much lived in the children's hospitals for 14 months. Buffy actually did live in the hospital. She never came home. She lived with Kevin. She slept with Kevin. I know that I was with Kevin 24-7. That was my, um, I don't know, I, I, I just thought he's not going to go through this alone. Kevin and I had a lot of time together in those, you know, alone in the middle of the night and hospitals. When I didn't know what was going to happen, I told him I didn't, I don't know. And when I knew what was going to happen, I told him what I knew. And I said, I just told him I was so completely honest with him. I did not think Kevin was going to die. <laughs> I just didn't think that. I just didn't. 
I didn't think it. No one ever really explicitly told me he's going to die either. They told me statistics. They told me, you know, stage whatever. They told me lots of details that didn't add up to a sentence of he is going to die until like very, very, very far into the process. I just moved through it with him. I did not leave his side. I said, you will not go through this alone. Kevin's big thing was, when can I play soccer again? That's all I care about. Like, when can I get out of here? So I told Kevin, I said, hey, Kev, we're going to have to walk through some fire here, buddy. And I go, but what's going to happen is we're going to walk through this fire and you're going to get healed and everything's going to be fine. And Kevin, this is what type of guy he was. He was like, okay, daddy. All right. And that was it. Kevin was that type of guy. He really was. He was just like, okay. Let's do this. When you think about a couple going through something like this, you wonder how they support and lean on one another. But that's a question people ask in hindsight. Because in the moment, life is triage. As far as like me and Buffy you know, leaning on each other, whatever. Actually, it's more like, I, I always looked at it as like, just like two people on a mountaintop with broken legs, kind of just looking at each other like, ah, I can't help you. You can't help me. Mainly, I watched over the other kids. You know, I took care of Connor and Dylan and we would come and hang out with Kevin. You know, we always had this hope that, you know, some doctor or some miracle or something would happen that Kevin would live and, but, you know, we finally, you know, took him home and we, we realized, you know, that all the uh, medical treatment was just going to destroy him even more. And we knew the inevitable and we took him home. The, the day he died, he, uh, it was August 4th, 2013. And that day happened to be a beautiful day, too. The sun was out. It was a really beautiful day in San Francisco. And it was a Sunday morning. That morning, Pat woke up and went downstairs to get a cup of coffee. Buffy called him back up. Kevin's oxygen levels were low, and their friend who was a hospice nurse told them it was time. Their son took his last breath and passed away. It's almost like I became a witness to my pain and to hers. And knowing that, that, you know, there's nothing I can do for Buffy right now other than I'm just, I'm just here. And this realization that this fire that I asked Kevin to walk through, that I guess it's us that have to walk through this fire and Kevin's okay, but it's us who are going to have to do it. And I think that's what we did do is not really, it's not that we leaned on each other, we both said, let's walk through this fire. And that's what we've been doing. When he passed, I was completely disoriented. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have an idea how I was going to be strong. I didn't even have an intention to be strong, to be really honest. I just thought, <sighs> I just really just didn't know what to do. 
I know there's people who like delay funerals and want to do this. And I was like, let's get this over with. For me, I, I, I knew that I, my grieving wouldn't even begin until after the funeral. I remember my sister saying, well, what are you going to do with your hair? I was just like, are you kidding? Like, are you kidding? Like, what am I going to do with my hair? Like, like I couldn't even feel my body. I like, let alone like, what am I going to do with my hair? What am I going to wear? I don't care. I don't care. Black dresses keep appearing and people tell me to put this on and that on. And I can't even feel my body. And my thought is I'm, I'm, fuck this. I'm going to, I'm going to have this window in my closet and it opens and I can scale out of here and I can, and, and I got, I had my car keys on me and I was like, okay, I'm going to scale down my house. I'm going to drive into my, I'm going to get into my car and I'm going to drive down the coast and I'm just not going to stop. I'm just not going to stop. I'm just going to keep driving. And a voice that is, that was Kevin's, that is Kevin's, and came to me and he said, just as clear as like in my head, you know, it's like any somebody else in the room wouldn't have heard it. I mean, said, Connor and Dylan will watch what you do and not what you say. <laughs> well, I knew what that meant. That meant I, I had to go on. If I crumbled and I showed them that life was over because life was over <laughs> to some extent but yet here I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old and they're at the beginning of their lives and you know I may as well have been a hundred years old that day when Kevin was dying all he cared about was his brothers where are Connor and Dylan what are Connor and Dylan doing mama They've been over Aunt Julie's house too long. They need to come home. Mama, where are they? And then he started having seizures, so he wouldn't remember what he said two minutes earlier. So there would be days where he said, where are Connor and Dylan? Like 3,000 times. And he was so concerned about them. You know, he was the older brother, and he was a natural older brother, and he always cared about them. And, and so... I knew that I had to take care of them. I, not only did I knew, know I had to, of course I wanted to, but I just didn't have it in me. And I, I knew I had to show them that we were going to be okay. Even when I didn't know we were going to be okay, I had to show them we were going to be okay. Because the last thing I wanted in life was to lose two more sons. So I got dressed. I went to the rosary and I stood there. As Pat says, like, that's actually when everything just, like, you think, okay, this is, now this is just it. And it's like, it's not it. It just keeps on, like, kind of like, after a death like that, it's just a big process of figuring out how to live after that and figuring out how to raise kids after that and figuring out how to, I don't know, function to get up and make breakfast and lunch and grocery shop and it's just I don't know it's just a big it's a big it's a big deal it's a big big transition imagine a house burning down and it's just burnt down to ashes that's what I see when I look into like when I look at my uh, our life 
I just see a life just burnt down to ashes and everything included how to, you know, be a husband, how to be a father. You take it one day at a time. You wake up and the first thing you do, you, you make a cup of coffee and you see what else you could do after that. And you take it one day at a time. In the year following Kevin's death, the family took a lot of trips. It was easier to be together when they were out of the house. Because even when you're setting the table, you set the table for five, you know, and it's four. And it, it would be okay if it had if it was four, but it was it was it was four with one missing. And so there was an empty space there. We had to be with each other. We had to just look at each other and be with each other and laugh and cry and fight and giggle and find a new rhythm together. And as they found that new rhythm, they always kept Kevin in the forefront of their minds, keeping his memory a close and important part of the family. The thing that's so powerful about Kevin's life is he he passed away when he was nine, but We really packed a lot into those years. Not like, oh, we got his diagnosis and then we packed a lot in. Like, he just packed a lot in normally. He just had a huge zest for life. And he was like everybody's best friend. It's strange because, you know, I know other eight-year-olds and you're just sort of like, oh, hi. It's like their life's just getting started at eight. But for some reason, Kevin just sort of was able to touch a lot of people's lives in a short amount of time. It's been six years since Buffy heard Kevin's voice tell her she had to be strong for her other two boys. That she had to keep going. Today, Connor is 13. Dylan's about to be 10. I drew inspiration from the voice that really felt like Kevin communicating with me, which was my message was to model to Connor and Dylan what I wanted their lives to be like what I want, what kind of courage I wanted them to approach their lives with, that I had to then also model that behavior. And so the byproduct of that all is that we all went through that together. We all moved through that together and we all loved Kevin. Kevin was part of this family and is part of this family and that we moved through that together, that we did those first days and first hours and first weeks, and, and we continue to do that. And the byproduct is that we all kind of have a perspective on what matters and what doesn't matter, which separates us from a world that worries about which grade they got in this class and blah, 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 blah. And so th- that's kind of, that. I think that that's the beauty, and I, I can see it in my kids. Buffy and Pat also had to figure out how to be there for one another after Kevin's death. And that doesn't come naturally to anyone. It's work. It's talking. It's trial and error. Pat and I just had very frank conversations about with each other about where we were at, what we could give, what we couldn't give, who, how this was shaping us. And what always emerged from these very frank conversations is that we were still very, very committed and connected to each other, even though we weren't even committed and connected to ourselves. I mean, it wasn't personal. It's just like, you just don't even like, you just don't even want to be here. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. 
even in all of those moments, we've always had this connection, this soul connection. It's just there and we are home for each other. So he used the analogy of being on a mountaintop with broken legs. My analogy that I kept thinking about is that we were two drowning people. And if I tried to help him, we would both drown. We really, our main function was to just keep our heads above water and function with each other, you know. And so I felt like we were just two drowning people side by side and in an open body of water, looking at each other and telling each other, you know, telepathically, I love you, I understand. And and then as, as a little bit more time emerged, it became clear that, that there's nobody else who understands it more than we do with each other. You know, like Buffy said, every day's new. You know, I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring, but I know I'll still love Buffy. I'll always love Buffy. Buffy got a lot of advice after Kevin passed away. But there's this one thing that really stuck with her. Never stop using his name. We talk about Kevin casually and just like when it comes up and and it does come up because Kevin's, you know, it's, it's not sad stories or it's funny stories or just like you would tell any stories. Just surviving is not good enough. And thriving is where we're at. And, And what you find too is you start looking around what's real and what matters. I want to thrive in a sense that the world's better because I was here and that the world's better because Kevin was here and the the world's better because we're all together and that, that we put love above all things. This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza, with special thanks to Buffy and Pat McGuire. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Ramsey Young. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com that's j-o at committedpodcast.com you can grab a copy of joe's book how to be married on amazon or wherever books are sold committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in atlanta georgia for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows
Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.